You don't like the definition of high performance. I think a lot of people use it in order to sell something. Secondly, you know, I've been in a lot of diverse environments. I don't, I'm not comfortable calling them high performance because every environment I've ever been in does some things incredibly well and does some things poorly. When people are marinating in cortisol, stress hormones, adrenaline because of fear, then that does energize them, that is true. But it isn't sustainable, they will burn out. So much of burnout isn't doing too much work, it's not stuff like that actually, it's just a constant state of stress and anxiety which becomes chronic. Huge thing that happened to, to me as a kid was my father dying when I was five. I think when I became a teenager I was a bit, I didn't have a good sense of my social self either. My dad was an only child, he was part Maori, part English. When I was 12 I wrote that letter to Naitahu, the Maori tribe, and I just asked them, you know, this is my dad, Harry Eastwood, this is my grandmother, Rose Eastwood, and that's all I know really. And they wrote this amazing letter, which actually transformed my life in many ways, which was, you know, we know who you are and you belong here, and gave me this whakapapa, this of a thousand years of my ancestors. Optimize performance through adapting your physical, psychological, and emotional state. Hey, it's Andrew, and welcome to another edition of the Performance Intelligence Podcast, the podcast about all things human performance. Owen Eastwood is a deep-thinking and very modest UK-based New Zealander of Maori descent. He is a lawyer-turned-performance coach, I don't know many people who have that title, who has been working with some of the world's leading teams, including the England football team, the British Olympic team, the South African cricket team, the All Whites. Ladies and gentlemen, make yourself a cup of tea, this is a very long list. The New Zealand rugby team, Chelsea, Manchester City, New Zealand Warriors, Harlequins Rugby, Scotland Rugby, Royal Ballet School, Command Group of NATO, and he's now working with corporate leadership teams literally around the world. Owen's best-selling book, Belonging, is a cracker and was presented to every member of the England football team at the beginning of the Euros. And I've given this book to multiple athletes and business leaders and every single person says they love it. Owen's big focus right now is helping corporate leaders reset their working culture as we move out of so much disruption and into a new world of teaming and performance. I first met Owen a few years ago. We were both speaking at KPMG New Zealand Partners Conference and this man stood up. He had poise, he had grace, he was a wonderful storyteller and I thought, I've got to sit down and have a coffee with this guy. We're sitting down together now. You're all the way from London. I'm here in Sydney. Owen, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much. Awesome to see you again. You've done a lot since we sat down and had that beautiful coffee at the Queenstown Country Club and you were set up in London then. And I really want to talk about your experience, what you've done. I've put a bit of a framework today because we could talk for hours. So in a rough theme, one, what are you doing now? Let's start with the present. Then we'll go back in time, the backstory. I love Faka Papa and I teach that through your message and teachings that you gave me. Uh, I want to talk about storytelling, and then we're going to do the performance intelligence baker's dozen. So I'm curious, because we got online at the start and were sort of riffing about a few mates and sport and footy, and I didn't actually ask, what are you doing now? Because I wanted to save it. So what, like, what are you doing today? What does this week look like? What teams? What's on the focus? Well, I am split my coaching between sport and in the corporate space. I enjoy them both a lot. So actually today, if you're asking me, uh, after this, I am heading into London. I'm coaching a chairwoman of a film studio. And so we will meet every month and review and preview and find out where our energy's at and those sort of things. So we, we'll have that conversation in London and Primrose Hill. Uh, then I have a meeting with an MBA team um, who enjoyed belonging and want to have a conversation. 
uh, and then I'm coming back. And in the evening, I actually live three hours out of London in the Cotswolds, um, beautiful sort of rural area. And yeah, so where I'm working at the moment, I still work with England football team. So I think I'm into year seven there, which has been a great experience. You know, quite a team which was low, very low, and not really competitive to be a small part of you know Gareth Southgate's transformation of that team. I'm on the board of Harlequins Rugby Club in the UK, um, which has been doing well in the last few years. Uh, I'm also working on a, another big event I'm not allowed to talk about at the moment. Unfortunately. Oh, come on. We've got but, a, bit of, a bit of jet lag there. It's nice and yeah. early in the Cotswolds at the moment. You drum roll on that one. You can't tell us. Yeah, the show's it. too popular. I'm, being, <laughs> I'm, being, I'm under strict um, confidence about it, but it's a big event this year, put it that way. And then I'm working with a band at the moment who um, – also read the book and enjoyed it, and I've been having some good conversations with them around where they're at and how they want to move forward. And then on the corporate side, yes, I coach a couple of um, executive leaders um, and their leadership teams just around performance. So, you know, as a performance coach, I'm interested in moving. How much have band members changed that they're sitting around now reading a book about belonging and they go mm. get the, the big Eastwood and start talking about connection and fuck a pup? Or I thought bands trashed hotel rooms and did crazy debaucherous acts and sold records and then got kicked off planes. <laughs> i tell you what, I think times have changed a little bit, actually. I think they're probably a bit more professional and a bit more intentional around what, you know, pursuing opportunities. So that's the sense I've got from talking with these guys. But I think, you know, the belonging is not an academic piece, as you well know. It's it's trying to find ideas that are universal to everybody and uh, not exclusive to Maori, but inclusive of everybody. And I find people from all walks of life, and increasingly so actually the education sector, people are wanting to talk about it and how they could apply some of those ideas to sort of shape their environments. So when you sit on an aeroplane and someone reaches over and introduces themselves and says, so what, what do you do, mate? Just what you've told me then from working with producers and bands and rock stars and, and NBA team. So you're talking about a basketball team, not a bunch of people who've got a master of business association. So that, that's such a range, isn't it? An athlete's the England football team. What do you say when someone says, so, Owen, what do you do? Well, I'm a performance coach and my focus is on leadership and culture. So I'm interested in what they're trying to achieve as a collective. And in order to achieve that, they're going to have to perform at a high level. So I'm not a strength and conditioning guy. I'm not a psychologist. I can't help in those ways. I'm not a technical coach, but I'm interested in culture and leadership and obviously accumulated lots of different experiences over the years. So I've generally will be approached because they feel I can help them move forward in those two very, very important areas. Hey, it's me. Just a quick note, I'd love you to subscribe to the Performance Intelligence Podcast. And I know you probably hear this on so many other podcasts and like me, you switch off. But can I ask you to please go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. And while you're there, extra bonus, leave a rating and review. That's it. Now let's get on to this week's guest. I don't think I told you this when we first met or in any subsequent conversations, but did you know I got into law? The first subject that I was, I got into at university was law. You did mention that, yeah. I did, and I changed at the last minute. Uh, my mother was mortified, Owen, because you know, law, it was a 
credible profession. You know, lawyers are intelligent and they're like you. You know, they they do big things and change the world. And I was going to sports science, which was just starting, and the TR back then I think was sixty out of a hundred, whereas law was up around mid eighties. Mum was mortified. The question I've got for you: What did law? practicing as a lawyer, teach you to go and work with all these people? Because I'm trying to make the link. Well, actually, I'm a bit the flip side of you. I, what I really wanted to do was be a, a PE teacher. Hmm. Um, but I, I had a horrendous last two years at high school around biology. Without naming names, I had a pretty poor teacher who was quite lazy and really de-energized us and we performed poorly. So again, coming back to culture and environment, you know, if it had been a different type of leadership in the classroom, I probably would have done quite well, but I actually did poorly and, and developed a real dislike for the, for the biology aspect. So when it came to going to university, I shied away and I just thought, I don't think I can go through another three years of focusing on that. So what else am I going to do? And then I thought I'd give Laura a go because I enjoyed English and felt there might be something in there around helping people, which is a big trait of our family. So that's where I got into it. In terms of the coaching, it's it's a good question, actually, because in some ways, having been a lawyer is a help in terms of coaching. In some ways, it's a hindrance. Does it help because you can win every coaching conversation? <laughs> you got better rebuttals, good arguments. Or am I, am I going down LA law style? I know law's a lot more broad than just winning in court. Well, I was a, I was a litigation lawyer, so I was arguing all the time with people. So, so no, you, you're not far away. I think the way it didn't help me is that when you are a lawyer, people pay a lot of money to come and see you, sit down and get advice. They, they don't come to have a facilitated conversation. They don't just come for you just to be a great listener. Mm. So some of those skills of being a good coach that's not actually how you're conditioned. What, what you're actually conditioned to do is very, very rapidly listen to what is being said and at the same time think through where this could go and what your advice is going to be, which is quite horrendous. See, while you're supposed to be listening and locked in, halfway through it, you are actually formulating ideas to f- play List- back to them. And- listening with your outcome in mind. So it's not re- it's selective Correct. listening. Yeah, it's poor. It's not good. It's not good preparation for coaching whatsoever. So that has still getting better and better just you know listening and not overplaying in my mind where what i think they should do but you know i had 15 years as a corporate lawyer so it's hard to unwind that and the other part of it which is i've now got to the point where i just talk to my clients and just are open about it is that the classic coaching approach is so i as a trained lawyer you can have a propensity to come at it and trying to give people advice and sometimes um, when you're coaching, as you know, all you need to do really is to allow the person to find the answers for themselves rather than telling them what you think the answer is. So um, I'm quite open with my clients now that I say that I do have a little bit of a reflex to advise after a period of time. So they need to be aware of that. If they will, and, and then often they actually do want me to do that as well, or at least throw ideas into the mix. Yeah, in coaching psychology, when I studied that, oh, and I got into a bit of trouble with one lecturer, and like your biology teacher, I won't mention names, but was someone who was a little bit stuck in the coaching methodology and couldn't maybe see a different approach, because I'd come from a sporting, not a psychology background. And the, the, part of this 
there, there was a middle ground. I think we were just both, both headbutting like goats. Uh, but in sport, a lot of times, especially with elite athletes, look at a lot of the people you work with when they're busy and they don't have much time. Sometimes they need to be told. Whereas, and coaching has evolved, but the original coaching psychology was, you know, I'm the coach, you're the coachee, and you facilitate so the client comes up with all the answers that are inside. Now, sometimes when you're working with you know, high-level people, professionals, or even just you know, anyone who wants to get ahead, they need to be told. But in my evolution of coaching, I was very much a teller because that's what I'd learned with the Australian cricket team, you know, working with elite sport. When I was at the AIS, it wasn't actually asking questions. I had a lot of great coaches, domain experts, but they'd tell. And I found that when I stepped into the corporate world, I was quite didactic. Some loved it, some loathed it and didn't come back. That's why I went to study and get uh, some more range in my coaching. So I, I had a couple of moments I can look back. One lady said to me, an executive ran a company, she said, Andrew, I didn't employ you to tell me what to do. I employed you to coach me. And it was like, oh, it was like the knockout punch. Did you have anything like that where someone said, hey, big dog, you're treating me like a lawyer? Because I see you, I hear you. I watch you. You are reflective. I said this at the start. You listen. You're compassionate. You're caring. You link that to, I think, your suffering, which we'll talk about as well. How did you pick up on that if you'd just been telling people what to do and trying to win battles? Well, you know, to be fair, as a lawyer, you would tend to give people two or three options rather than say this is what you should definitely do. I mean, they have to make that decision for themselves. So I was, in the, I was used to giving options, I would say, rather than saying this is the right way and that's the wrong way. And actually, I haven't, I, and I haven't in coaching been having, having a practice of telling people what to do. What, what I actually tend to do is what's called river jumping. I'm not sure if you heard that term before, but what it means is when a client is talking through their situation and what they're grappling with, I will try and river jump with them. And that means that I will try and bring in two or three stories or reference points, parallels to where they're at and allow them to use that to have a sort of fresh view on their situation. So someone like Gareth Southgate may be grappling with something. He finds it useful where you, because my practice as I work with, as I've mentioned before, three, four, five, different teams a year. He is interested in what other leaders have done in similar situation to himself and working through the pros and cons of that. They find that very helpful. So I think mm -hmm. that is a decent coaching to be able to do that rather than just allow them to keep navel gazing until they find an answer. I like the term river jumping. I was having a chat to a mutual buddy of ours last night. He's another mental skills slash performance coach now working in your neck of the woods. You know who I'm talking about? Mm. Aaron That's Walsh. And while she asked me a great question, I thought, ooh, I'm going to ask Owen Eastwood that. He asked me, how many teams do I think I can work with for maximum results? And I said, yeah, I've been thinking about this quite a lot. So my, my thoughts before I throw to you, Owen, I don't want to work with one team. So at the moment, I'm working with the mighty Manly Seagulls. And when you come to Sydney, we'll get your tickets and come and watch us win. I can see the big yeah. thumbs up there. Are you a Manly uh, Seagulls supporter? I do. I like them, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And I am working with a boxer and a couple of other athletes and talking to another sport as well. So ideal for me, I'd like two sports, very different codes, uh, working with women as well. I think it's important to work with men and women. I said to Walsh, I think the coach is essential, that relationship with the coach, because when you're a performance coach, mental skills, a leadership coach, that sort of 
triangle of skills. I think you've got to have a good working relationship with the coach. I think there's got to be a really good talent coming through, playing group. And I don't think you want to go to a team when they're number one because you can only go down. So they're my thoughts. Work with a couple of teams, uh, diverse as far as the sport and sex. Uh, Great working relationship with the coach. Talent coming through, but they're not at the top. What do you think? Well, I do agree with that. That's my preferred approach, partly because I've got a small attention span. So working just with one team the whole time actually finds doesn't bring the best out of me. I, I, sometimes I'm working in the dressing room, but often I'm not. With Harlequins, I'm on the board. So you're actually very much at arm's length from the players and coaches. Um, with England football team, I tend to come in and out a little bit around tournaments. You know, I'm not in, you know, I'm not there all the time. Other teams, I work at an organisational level. So I'm working with the board, the CEO around, you know, do we even have a performance strategy? So I'm actually diverse within the type of work that I do. And I'm finding as I get more experience, I'm getting asked probably to work more with the top leaders around, you know, driving forward a great strategy and culture rather than working with the players per se. I agree with you on the diversity bit. I mean, the film studio I work with is called Sister. They're based in Los Angeles and London. The three founders are a woman, um, quite iconic woman. The chairwoman is Liz Murdoch. And yeah, she's done amazing. all right, hasn't she, Liz Murdoch? Like a, she has a done all right. there. She has, but, you know, she's, and I, I don't, you know, not tuned massively into all that stuff, but she's an extremely impressive and kind-hearted person, you know, I've got to know very well. But that, that's an interesting one as a male sort of working in that space where this is a, um, very much a female-led business, and I, I love that. I mean, just love being sort of challenged and working out where I'm impacting and, and less so, and the way that I communicate has to be very agile, really, mm. in all the different environments you're in. A quick break in the program to let you know about the Performance Intelligence Masterclass. You see, every week we receive a number of requests from people listening to the podcast or attending one of my keynote presentations wanting to know more about personal performance coaching. Due to the demands on my time, running strivestronger.com, delivering mental skills training for athletes and sporting teams, my speaking practice, and also having four kids, I only allocate a set amount of time each week, about half a day, towards coaching. And this is primarily targeted at senior executives and entrepreneurs and founders. The starting price for my coaching programs is $15,000, which I realize is a lot of money and it's prohibitive for many people. So, based on the success of a 12-month coaching program we've been delivering for a number of corporate clients, we are launching a public version of Performance Intelligence Masterclass. It's open to the public and it's open to people like you. So if you would like to boost your psychological fitness and resilience, enhance physical well-being and energy, if you want to live longer, if you want to increase productivity, if you want to enhance cognitive capacity and decision-making, and if you want to do this with a support group of like-minded people, oh, and if you also want to make more money, Performance Intelligence Masterclass has been designed for you. How does it work? Well, the format is we pick a theme for each quarter like being match fit or boosting productivity or accelerating mental skills, enhancing leadership, etc. There's a half-day group workshop. Then we have six weeks of check-ins where you're made accountable each week just by asking five or six key questions. And then we wrap that up with a 60 to 90-minute workshop, six weeks after the half-day workshop. And then for the rest of the quarter, you put this into practice. To find out more, go to andrewmay.com slash performance intelligence masterclass.
You've been working with England at football for seven years. I've, I've been thinking this a while. I've been thinking this for a while myself. Do, do you think you have a shelf life with a team? Do you get to a stage where you think I've done all I can here? I've seen the cultural markers. I've seen the performance change. I've got the board right. I don't know if you got this in New Zealand. There was a show when I was growing up called The Littlest Hobo, this German shepherd that was a random dog. Did you mm, watch that? The Littlest nice. Hobo yeah. comes into town, you know, fixes the yeah. problem, then he goes back on. <laughs> I don't know where The Littlest <laughs> Hobo came into it. You probably never had that in a conversation about your work, right? Do you think there's a bit of that in all of us, that you have a time period and then you go, hey, I've done all I can here. It's now good to, to leave. Oh, that's a really good question. I've not been asked that before. My instinctive answer is I don't really believe that. I think if you can bring energy and you've built up trust over time, then they are really important. And you've got the ability to have critical thinking with the partners. I think that I think then there's no reason why you need to just step away. You know, it takes a long time to build trust and it takes a long time to build really institutional knowledge of not only a team, but actually the whole system that they're part of. So to walk away after a while and allow someone just to step in and start from scratch, building relationships, trying to understand it. I don't think that necessarily serves a team well. Also, for me personally, every single piece of work I do, I need to have some emotional connection to it. You know, I'm not transactional. I'm not trying to just monetize, you know, my coaching. So I don't like walking away from relationships. So I think, you know, I think the England football team is a good example. Like last year before the World Cup, the team had lost, I think, five out of six games and in the, in, in, during this season was in a pretty low place. So therefore, the question for, for me to help with was different than it had ever been before. And that was actually, you know, we've lost our confidence a little bit and we're going into a World Cup where we really feel we should be competitive. So the question became from a cultural leadership coaching point of view, how do we get this group of people to believe in themselves quickly and, and be able to compete, notwithstanding a really poor year. So that, that was a completely unique challenge. So you have to bring different ideas into it. Geez, you got close. I, was, I, was, I can remember I was on holidays with my family and every time like England was winning, I was thinking of you thinking, God, they're getting closer, they're getting closer, they're getting closer. And it was like, oh, how did you process that? Did you look at that and go, oh, there's something else we could have done? Or did you go, hey, that's we've done really well. We got to, to a level I think we were above where I thought we would get. No, we, we, we lost in the quarterfinal to um, the world champions, who then went on and made the final again. We missed a penalty, which, which would, was very rare for Harry Kane to miss a penalty. And we made a defensive mistake. And um, they were the reasons, you know, we weren't able to finish the job off. So I found earlier in my career that my ego, although I would say I don't have an ego, my ego would play up completely during those type of tournaments. So what I mean by that is, on the one hand, you want your team to play to their potential and to, and, and to succeed in the mission they've set for themselves, of course. That's the professional challenge. But when they give their absolute best, you know, they can look in the mirror it's a game of margins and you, you win by margins, you lose by margins. When that all happens, I can live with it okay. But mm. I found, as I said earlier in my career, is my ego didn't couldn't live with that. Because all of a sudden, the idea that, oh, oh, here we go, we might be part of a world champion team and imagine what that would mean and imagine how people would think about you and talk about you and imagine all the opportunities would come from that. That would occasionally enter my head when I started in this career. 
Absolutely, they don't come into my head now at all. I don't think like that whatsoever. When I'm trying to help a team, I'm much more locked in to them and what they're trying to achieve. And as long as we, you know, do what we want to do and we live to the standards that we set for ourselves, then I, I can live with the outcome. At the risk of turning this from a podcast into a coaching session, just reflecting on those two questions I've asked you. One is, like, do you think you have a shelf life when you get out? And, and two, I've asked you that about results. What would you throw back to me or what would you guide me in the evolution of my career to to shift out? Because I, I do think the teams I work with, I'm, I'm deeply embedded to the results. So I obviously look at process and then the outcome follows. Was there any guidance you could give me that you've had along the way to to try and separate more from that emotionally? Well, as I mentioned, I think if you're having a severe emotional reaction to losing, then it's just worthwhile just to take yourself somewhere quiet and ask yourself the questions to why you're reacting in that way. Not not severe, but you do, you like you you ride it like you do ride the performances. I mean, what what when um, a team has had a disappointment, what they need from you as a coach and from me as a coach is optimism, some positivity, and some energy. They don't need me to be feeling sorry for myself or be pissed off or down in the dumps, and which does happen. I mean, some people, as you've seen, can act like that in environments. And that's where I think they are. It's selfish to act in that way. So the question, it's like being a parent. Every single day, you have to ask yourself the question, what's needed from me today? And, you know, something may have gone dreadfully badly last weekend or yesterday, um, but we don't want to anchor everybody around that. We want to move forward. So, so yeah, um, yeah, of course, when you're watching a game and you lose in the last minute, and I've been with the thing, the football team, we lost a... Euro European Championships on in penalties. Of course, you're you're very disappointed, but I suppose what I'm saying is it only lasts a short period of time and definitely doesn't push into the next day when we've got work to do. I really like that. What is needed from me today? Uh, do you follow or do you read much about the Stoics? I think there's a bit of a rising, especially in America now. It's like everyone's jumped onto this new thing. If you listen to some of the American podcasts, it's been around for thousands of years. Do you bring Stoicism into your teaching? Not explicitly. I've got a good friend who's a coach, who, and that's his philosophical framework for his coaching. I, I do um, agree with some of those basic tenets here, but I don't explicitly talk about it. But I'm, you know, I'm from a farming family. We're just pragmatic. I mean, you know, if you have a bad day on the farm yesterday, and something, you know, the fence broke, and the sheep ran across a road into someone else's property, and all of that, then you fix it, and then the next day you're not down in the dumps feeling sorry for yourself or moaning and whinging about it, you move on to what's required on the farm that day. So, I've, I've heard, well, it's a great, getting farming into high performance as an analogy. I didn't expect that one, Wiz. But you've, you talk about the brutality of your work. You might be working with someone to go to the Olympics and it's every four years and then that moment closes for another four years or the NBA team or it's the World Cup. It is quite brutal and I, I love that, yeah, what's needed from me today, and that's going to be the ripple effect to other players. Were you always like that, or did you mm. find in the early days you had to sort of disconnect from the emotion a little bit and be a little bit more grounded? No, no, it's definitely come with experience because you know I came from being a lawyer to a performance coach very, very quickly and very accidentally, and I wasn't prepared for what the hell it was like to be competing in front of millions of people on TV and. And those type of things. So it takes a little bit of a while to get your head around it. I think one thing I would say, though, is 
one of the things I enjoy about, I, I actually don't like the expression high performance, so we maybe talk about that later, but in those environments, one thing I really, really like about them is that people are inherently courageous who operate in that space. The reason being, they do set incredibly lofty goals for themselves and they take on board the complete risk that they won't happen. So I don't, if someone's disappointed, my experience actually is that they are courageous people who knew that was a complete possibility but decided to have a go anyway. So actually it's not a situation where people are moping around and, you know, we've got to put their, our arms around them for, for weeks and months. I actually have not found that at all. I've found that people are, are resilient and able to bounce back and reset their goals and go forward again. That's my experience rather than, you know, having to really, really give therapy to people. We can't leave that open loop. You don't like the definition of high performance. Come on, big guy, talk to me about that. You just sort of left that hanging in the air. I'm like, oh, nearly every performance coach, every sporting team I've worked with, every corporate team, you know, I worked at KPMG, we'd always hear every sentence is around high performance. Well, I'll be a bit controversial, maybe, but uh, there's a number of reasons I don't like it, the term high performance. Number one is I think it's been in industrialised. I think a lot of people use it in order to sell something to people. You do what you do. Why don't you do something which is high performance? And I think there's probably thousands of people who use that in order to sell to people. So I don't quite like that. Secondly, you know, I've been in certain, you know, a lot of diverse environments. I don't, I'm not comfortable calling them high performance because every environment I've ever been in does some things incredibly well and does some things poorly at the same time. So, so the idea that we have a high performance environment and the perception that therefore everything we do is of a high standard and BS in my view, you know, I could take you into some pretty famous teams and you, there'll be certain things you'll go, that's cool, that's great, that's inspirational. And then other things the same day you'd look at and go, that is poor, I can't believe I just saw that. So we're all flawed human beings. So the idea that some people are high performers in a holistic way and operate in high performance environments is not true. Um, and that absolutely includes me as well. Some of my coaching is of a high caliber and other, other parts of it you would be rolling your eyes at. The other, the other reason I don't like high performance is that I actually think it puts up the wrong question. The question for me that we should be considering is creating healthy environments, not high performing environments. The fact is if you create a healthy environment, then performance will follow. And what I'm absolutely got no interest in whatsoever is creating an unhealthy environment where we might be able to get a short-term performance and we might be able to get a trophy and some bling and some money and then we all move on. That doesn't interest me in the slightest. So what I'm interested in is let's create a healthy environment and that will give people the energy and the trust and togetherness to then perform at a high level. That's the way I prefer to think about it. I'm loving that. And that third one. The, the word that's jumping out at me is psychological safety, where you have that environment you know, built on a bedrock of trust where people can have open conversations, say, hey, oh, and I don't like that. And, and you can give feedback and have a, you know, a dialogue, two-way dialogue, reflective dialogue, rather than just win at all costs. And a, a team that I worked with a while back got results, got to a certain level, and I think they just ran out of path. It was very fear-driven, and yep. that, that gets you to a certain level. 
But I, I emphatically believe if we could have stepped out of fear, bought in Owen Eastwood, got some belonging and, and really changed the culture, I, I think that team would have performed so much better. I think it comes also down to what how you define success. Um, some people define success by picking up a trophy or hitting a, some financial metric. But I've worked in environments where we've been invited into an environment environments where they've done a little bit of analysis and found that people who have gone through their program are four times more likely to have mental health issues later in life than the normal population. So my question back to them isn't, you know, let's do A, B and C because that's high performance. My question to them is, are you okay with that? Are you okay that people come here, you're regarded as number one in the world, which they were, but you also know that as a result of the program you put them through, and the experience they have here, they're four times more likely to have mental health issues around anxiety and depression than the normal. Is that are you okay with that? That's shocking research. If you, yeah, yeah but it's not unique. There are a lot of environments like that. You think of all the scandals around gymnastics around the world, ballet. There's a lot of environments where that is exactly what transpires, even in the NFL around suicide rates. And, you know, if we actually want to go in those dark places, it's quite scary. So, Someone wants to work with me and they say, yes, we are comfortable with that formula that, yes, there will be some personal cost, but as an organisation, we maintain number one ranking. Then I'll say, okay, that's your call. I've got absolutely no interest in being part of that. That is not a success in the way I define it. But the principles you're talking about, that reframing of high performance, I, I believe if you get that, you're going to get connectivity. You're going to have psychological safety. You're going to have good relationships. You're going to be a very positive influencer on young men and young women. One of my biggest goals, Owen, is athletes I work with are in a better place, not just when I work with them, not just when they're with the team, but when they transition. Because there's so many athletes who are at the top of the mountain and then they come rolling down when the contract is over, the world champs is gone, the Olympics is closed, and they do not know what to do. I think you can influence their lives far more outside sport. We know they're more balanced. But I'm, I'm sitting in the position and go, yeah, yeah, I get all that. If you've got a chair who wants you to work with their board or a CEO who wants you to work with their company, sport or enterprise, they're still going to want to get results. Has any person ever pushed back and said, no, mate, you're not right with that philosophy? I need you to get on the winning bus. Well, I am on the winning bus. I mean, I think I might, if you look at my record, I'm involved with teams who get better and become very competitive and, you know, have won quite a lot of stuff. So people would not invite me anywhere near their building if they didn't think I could help their performance. It's just that I have a certain approach to how you get the best out of human beings and it's based on creating a healthy environment. And, you know, that's you actually just gave another example where high performance is a bit of a useless term. You've got your own definition of it, which I like, and the lines with my own. But I, someone sent me through the other day, I was just sitting at my desk and I got a, me, a WhatsApp message. And someone was in a high performance workshop and they just took a photo of the slide that this high performance coach was presenting. And the slide was, people need to fear their leader. <laughs> and so that's a high performance, that's a high so-called high performance workshop by a high performance coach. And so that's why I think it's a bit useless as a term. And did you miss a bit? Was that taken in the seventies? Did you see a timestamp yeah. like nineteen seventy four down the bottom? I was shocked, I have to say. But I'm at the same time, I think about it, and actually, yeah, a lot of people believe in that. So, 
Yeah, I, I'm, I'm interested in performance, but I have my own philosophy and approach. And, that, and, and the, this is where actually I think there needs to be a conversation is that people think there's a, there is a conflict and tension between creating a healthy environment and, being, and getting results. I think that is completely ignorant. If you look at the teams who are able to sustain success rather than, you know, financially doping or talent doping themselves up to win one season, if you look at that, then they do create cultures generally of belonging, psychological safety, growth, all of those things, which I think are good markers of, of success for people. Ladies and gentlemen, I can feel a new book coming along. Belonging, it starts with and it shifts to sustaining or performing. Is there a new book in the wings? Do you reckon you'd need to get? Well, I actually, I think that is a conversation piece. I'd love to you know, pick up when you come to Sydney. We'll have a coffee, go for a walk, and talk about that. Uh, I, well, I think like it's even for huge. the purposes of this chat now, you know, I talk about culture in terms of the hormonal impact it has on people. Um, when people are marinating in cortisol, stress hormones, adrenaline because of fear, because they don't feel safe, then that does energize them. That is true. But it isn't sustainable. They will burn out. I mean, if you're looking at what's happening in the corporate world, so much of burnout isn't over um, not doing too much work. It's not stuff like that, actually. It's just a constant state of stress and anxiety, which becomes chronic. Yeah. So. So what I'm interested in are, are environments, and this is my this is the engineering part of the work that I do, is we're trying to engineer environments where cortisol and stress levels are managed and other energizing hormones like dopamine, which we have surges when we're in the pursuit of a goal, and oxytocin, which surges when we are surrounded by people we feel Connection. connected to and we can trust. They are what I'm interested in. And they, and I would argue with anyone any time, that they drive performance um, in a much more sustainable and healthy way than motivating people through fear and jeopardy. So much more. Earlier today, I, I did some of the work we're doing with Navy. We said at the end of a program, we got them to do an ice bath. So they did breathing and then hopped in an ice bath and you know how cold that is. And then the Navy crew said, all right, you're going to do Hewitt training with us, which is helicopter underwater escape training. And I, I should have read the brochure, Owen, helicopter underwater escape training. So what would that say to you? <laughs> you know, get the hell out of there. Yeah, get the hell out of there. So we rocked up last night. We did a briefing 7.30 a.m. this morning, and then we did all the dry land training. And then we had to go through it. So they set you in this simulator helicopter, and they put you in all different seats so you get used to all the different helicopters. And then they go brace, go through the whole protocol, and then it fills with water. They flip you upside down, and they say to do it with eyes closed. One, to train you, because there are two you have to do blindfolded, because you can't you know, say, hey, turn the lights on if you crash at night. And the other one is so for sensory overload, to often shut off the vision, so then you can feel and not panic with all the bubbles. Yeah, I can tell you the first one I did today, my friend, I had cortisol, I had adrenaline pumping through my system to the point I almost felt anxiety. And I, I had to tap out on one of them. So we, we got through and Ange Poon, who I work with, like Ange is this small petite girl and I did it with Dino Gladstone who 
uh, just on Bondi Rescue here. He's, you know, a great swimmer and Ironman. And, and Dino and I had to tap out on one. And like little Anne, just, she won. So <laughs> I had that feeling today. I, I felt so tired after yeah. that, just that, that shot of adrenaline. But linking yeah. it back to our story, the great resignation is bullshit. And I thought that when it was predicted. But it's the great burnout syndrome we are now facing. So you are spot on. And when people don't feel like they belong, the opposite, they're disconnected, they're fragmented. I, I only see that we're at the start of this. I think it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better, unless people get smart, intelligent people like you in. And I think we're going to get hormonal is going to be the lens we're going to think about culture. And actually coming back to your example of the helicopter, which I'm incredibly glad I was um, on the other side of the planet from. <laughs> God, I needed you there. <laughs> You know, the, yes, you would have had adrenaline and, and stress. That's true. But another thing that would happen there would have been a massive endorphin release because when you have a shared experience with people, particularly when you know, there is some discomfort to it, but not always, even around the campfire, actually, the same thing. We have a big endorphin release. Now, endorphin release is really, really important for building trust and psychological safety and connection. So, so you know, there's different ways you can look at all of these experiences from, but from a cultural point of view, we've got some clarity around how we want to do it. And yeah, 100% of burnout. You know, you, you've worked with coaches who are burnt out. They're not working harder than they were um, in terms of hours or workload or anything. It's just the emotional toll. The stress goes from energizing to chronic. And, you know, as I suppose what I'm saying, there are certain environments where people are comfortable that they create chronic, chronic stress for their people. And that is not good for people's health, and that's certainly nothing that I want to be involved in. Just about that shared experience, you're right. We had McDonald's. We said, I haven't told you this. Uh, at the end, you know, we all dried off. We went and had McDonald's before we came home. We were just sitting there, and you could feel that adrenaline and just that, oh. And I looked over to Ange and said, I love you, Ange. I'm alive. <laughs> I love my family. I love you. <laughs> I love my team. I love everyone. I mean, there was so much love and oxytocin after that. It was great. That's it, mate. That is exactly it. That's what I'm talking about. And that's a very healthy feeling, even if you have to get into a very stressful situation to get there. So, yeah, I think we can be a bit smarter about all this stuff. You know, I've heard different environments, again, literally say to me, we're trying to break down our people. Okay, so what are you talking about? You know, in order to go to the Olympics or do whatever, only the mentally toughest can survive. So we try and make this quite brutal and we don't apologize for that so we can weed them out. I hate that. I can, oh. And I reckon that's complete BS. Did you see oh, me, I, go, like, when you went mental toughness, I'm like, oh, like it's mental flexibility. Sometimes you've got to be tough. Sometimes you need to chill, you know, the yin and the yang. Yeah. I mean, what it does is that people who are used to trauma and used to dysfunction around them can survive in that because they're used to it. But people who come from different backgrounds will pop out very early. It's got nothing to do with their talent level or their ability to grow psychological skills. The idea of weeding out teenagers, the mentally tough, rather than nurturing them, giving them the psychological tools they would need to compete in Olympic Games. I mean, it, it is. It does sound like this is friggin' medieval, but this is still the truth in a lot of environments. You get fired up. I love the passion. Mm, you go I'm from being, you know, dun, 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 and it's a couple of questions that pressed a nerve, and I see you jump, and the, the, it, this is like, <laughs> this is really yeah. you, isn't it? Like, this is. Like, you're calling. This This is what you're meant to do. You've been put on this earth, I think, to spread this message. Well, I'm not sure about that, but I, I think part of the, my fire and my belly about it is that after belonging came out, you know, you, you get an amazing 
range of people reached out. And one of them was teaming neuroscientists in New York called Sapien Labs who do the global mental health report. And so they go around the world every single year and do this mental health report across 188 countries. They interview 300,000 people. So it's not, you know, westernized. It's, it's a glo proper global approach. And they've found that the age group between 16 and 24 is the one who's mentally suffering the most now and in the last few years. And the work I've done underneath that, and so to the point where 40% of people in between 16 and 24 across the globe reported that they were mentally traumatized traumatized at some point in the past 12 months. When they got underneath why that was the case, their main reason is that people in that age group today have a poor sense of their social self. Okay, so what does that mean? What that means is, unlike when you and I were kicking around the neighborhood, playing with the neighbors on the street, going down to the local park, then going to sports practice in the classroom, go down to church maybe on the Sunday, always part of these communities that you had a deep sense of belonging to didn't have to enjoy it all the time and, and like everybody but you you had a sense of your social self that you belonged and there's a sense of safety around that people don't are having that diminishing all the time you know they're on their screens team sport is falling away in a horrendous way across the globe which is a terrifying thing because that's an amazing place where you learn to belong and you learn what it takes to be part of a team and people are feeling chronically isolated and lonely and not just older people but the young are feeling like that as my son who's 15 told me you know the snapchat groups whatsapp group he just looked at me and said you know what i spend so much time on this and it's completely soulless that's what he said so so that is this is not this is what high performance that that's not the issue is high performance the issue is our young people are not having the experiences of belonging and trust and psychological safety that we had. And that's going to end up deteriorating their, their well-being. And I'm, I will do everything I can to try and help address that. Are you planning an upcoming conference or company offsite? For the past 15 years, I've averaged speaking at over 50 events each year. And I still love presenting at conferences as much as I did when I first started. To explore the different presentations I offer on a range of topics and themes including physical and psychological well-being, becoming burnout proof, connection and belonging, that's a new area I'm, I'm really enjoying presenting on, neuroscience and behaviour change, mental skills and leadership and culture, or if you'd like to understand our fully integrated conference experience with pre-event diagnostics, activities throughout the agenda, including a morning wake up, energy breaks, team building activities, and digital resources to embed learning. To find out more information and to download a brochure, go to andrewmay.com slash keynotes. Did you struggle at that age, 16 to 24? So if we look back at the evolution that led to where you are now, your upbringing, grew up in New Zealand. What was life like as a young kid? So let's go, first of all, the you know, first five, six, seven years, and then we'll go to that, that teenage age group. You know, the huge thing that happened to to me as a kid was my father dying when I was five, uh, suddenly, and my mother being 39 and having a 13-year-old, 10-year-old, myself, five, and my sister, three. So she, my, my mother was one of seven children, and we were surrounded by family to help us get through the trauma and grief of, of that. 
but that definitely had a big impact on me and i think it still does to be to be honest missing my dad i think when i became a teenager i was a bit i didn't have a good sense of my social self either my dad was an only child he was part maori part english didn't feel connected to either of those his mother my grandmother lived in auckland which is you know a thousand miles away from where we lived didn't see her enough really so when I was 12, I wrote that letter to Naitahu, the Maori tribe, and I just asked them, you know, this is my dad, Harry Eastwood, this is my grandmother, Rose Eastwood, and that's all I know, really. You know, they, my grandmother says I'm in your tribe, but you know who I am, and they wrote this amazing letter, which actually transformed my life in many ways, which was, you know, we know who you are and you belong here, and gave me this whakapapa, this of a thousand years of my ancestors. They taught me what that concept was, the idea that each of us, whether it's your family or any community you belong to, a team, a business, any any group of people, that you're only one person in a line of people with your arms interlocked, going all the way back to whatever the origin story is and into the future to the end of time. And the metaphor being the sun first shone on that first ancestors and just slowly moves down this line of people and reveals each of us in turn. And they say so they explained in a in a very emotionally satisfying way that you and your father's arms are interlocked, um, and that will always be the case, even though the son's moved off him, it's on you now. And then in time, your children and grandchildren. So all of these ideas were absolutely incredible, and and they are the backbone of my um, coaching practice now. And they're not indigenous ideas of one place; they're universal ideas across the species i'm very convinced of that from all the feedback i've had it's a it's a sad story to hear that about your your dad and you've turned that into a purpose or a gift to give back to others i've i've mentioned that fucker papa to some of the pacific players i've worked with in different sports and their eyes light up and and they said how do you know this i go oh, you know i'm, I'm pakeha <laughs> but i'm going to give you a book and i've given a number of them the book <laughs> plays and they've just said yeah, thank you, because it is a, it's a beautiful story. And you don't have to be Maori, you don't have to be no. English, you Chinese, any descendancy. I think everyone wants to know that they belong. So when you said those words before, I could I just feel like just a goosebump. Like when you say it, there's so much meaning, there's so much connection, there's so much love. You would have said that hundreds of times. But I can see every time you say that, it's it's here, right? It's, it's from the heart. Well, it is, and it, it, it allowed me to move towards a healthier version of who I was and then a healthier life. And I, that's why I think it's important if we actually make time to have conversations like this and and we share what we've learned and what's been passed down to us by ancestors, then we can help each other a lot. Now, this isn't all about corporate speak and high performance and inverted commas workshops and all that. You know, it's just actually trying to frame what the hell is life? What the hell is it being part of this team, community, family? Or whatever. Just understanding at that level, probably a spiritual level, what this is all about. And, you know, people who came before us had some beautiful ways of articulating that. And and I just think it's very dangerous to, to lose sight of it and start going into this world of the individual. You know, like you even mentioned, you know, like my purpose. I don't ever think of myself as having any purpose whatsoever. And I know really? that's a bit. Un- I know that's unconventional. Yeah, I, I don't have my purpose. If I have to use that word, is to do whatever I can for the teams and the in the groups that I um, are part of, whatever they need from me. So my family, my purpose is not to be a great father or whatever. I don't think about that. I my purpose is to do what my family need in any given point in time. With England football team, I'm not delivering on some great purpose I've got in life. 
they are trying to compete. They want to be the best team in the world and they feel I can help them. And that's my commitment is to give them everything I can. So I, I, I don't actually like, and in my book, I interviewed Jerome Kaino, the double World Cup winning All Black, and I asked him, what's your purpose to test this? And he came back to me and said, I don't actually understand what that question means. My purpose is whatever my family, my community, my church, my country needs from me. I'll do whatever I can for them. And that's how I feel. And I actually think that's a healthier way to look at life than thinking I have to have my individual purpose, my individual values, my individual mission. By definition, to me, that sort of puts you away from people, not with them. God, I love podcasts. And when the info pops up, you just didn't expect. Michael Gervais, who I've heard you interviewed by, and I'm a big fan of Michael's because I'm definitely one of the world's leading sports psychologists, talks about purpose uh, has to be bigger than you, future focused, and to be more than you. And there's loads of research that shows purpose or people with a clearly identified purpose will live longer. They'll bounce back more from adversity. They have higher resilience and they also tend to make more money. So when you see that research, how do you rationalize all that? And is it that this is more than purpose to you. So purpose might seem a bit kitsch because you have a few people say, hey, let's do your purpose in five steps. Mm. I asked you two questions there. Let's start with the first one. No, you make a good point. I mean, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, which the top one being self-actualization, the bottom ones being, you know, water and food and shelter. That idea of self-actualization, I didn't really like that, but I had a good chat to Michael and also he put me on to, you know, um, some of the neuroscientists he knows well. And actually Maslow intended self-actualization, the highest level of it, to be helping other people. So if you want to talk about, you know, having an individual purpose that ultimately is about helping other people, then fine. I mean, I'm not telling people not to define their own individual purpose. I'm just saying I don't think in those ways. And But if people do think of it in a way which is helping others, great. But not everybody does. Some people think it's being as wealthy as they possibly can be, having the most beautiful partner they can find, having the biggest house, all of that. That's, That's shallow amazing. bullshit goals yeah. to impress other people that you probably don't like and buying cars with big seats you never sit in and no one wants to sit in with you because you're an arsehole. Yeah, I mean, that, it's got no interest to me whatsoever to work with people who that is their purpose. I've got absolutely no interest. You're a great storyteller. So do you... Do you sit back and reflect? So when you're working with the movie producers, when you're working with NBA teams, before you go in, you know, that beautiful question, how do I best show up today? But do you also do planning around this? Do you think, how do I tell a story? Because it's such a diverse range of people, or does it just flow? Have you just always had a natural innate ability to captivate through story? I don't think I'm a great storyteller at all. Um, oh, come on. You've written a best-selling book. You've got people all around the world saying, I read your story, Owen Eastwood, and I connected with it. I'm not letting you off with that. I don't. I, I, it's not the way I look at myself. And when I was younger, I was the shy kid in the in amongst our group, and I'd let everyone else tell the stories. I, I think what I, – I, I, you know, I wouldn't want to overanalyze it, but what I am comfortable doing is going to emotional spaces with people. And I think that's also feedback I get from teams is that – ultimately our most energy will come from emotion so we need to be able to go there we can't just do the technical tactical operational stuff we have to find what the emotion is that sits amongst this group of people that's where ultimate energy and again look at it through hormones is going to be so the dopamine the oxytocin those things um endorphins so 
I don't really know why, but I am very comfortable. I've got no problem at all being vulnerable in terms of my own story and then sharing other stories and in particular their story. So I have loved with England football team, for example, going into the, the story of that shirt being passed down and feeding back in some of the emotional stories that have been lost and allow the players to start thinking about how they want to be remembered and what their legacy could be and, and what chapter of the story they want to write together. So I think it's, yeah, I don't think I've got any great storytelling ability particularly, but I am very happy to, to get into emotional spaces with people and I feel like they need to be taken there as well and I'm happy to do it. You almost <laughs> stole the article I had on you. I've done some research, mate, and I wanted to quote an article last May, but you, you, you're so in tune to this emotional space. You know what's coming up. You know what I'm going to say next, right? That there's that that listening. Uh, you were quoted as saying, one thing I was surprised about with England was there was no institutional passing down of stories. The All Blacks have very powerful and clear inductions and rituals around explaining where they come from, their ancestors, what the shirt represents, where their values come from and what they look like when they're being lived. I spent the first three months doing a really deep reflection on the history of the team and how the culture could be taken forward. Some players felt we didn't really have an identity, that we just copied what France and Spain were doing. Michael Owen had told me that when he was being recruited by Sir Alex Ferguson, he invited to him him to his house, sat him down and explained the identity story of Manchester United and what the shirt meant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I did find that pretty amazing. Maybe being a New Zealander coming and working in the UK, it's strange the fact that they don't tend to do much emotional storytelling or, or dig into their past to get some inspiration. It is very tactical and technical over here. You know, football clubs, a massive example of that. England football team, England rugby team, lots of environments I've been in, it's like that. And I just think people want to be fired up emotionally around who we are and what makes us different and what makes us special. I think they're fundamental questions every leader should be able to answer for a team. And, you know, I know with my own children as a little example, they are really fired up, excited. Their body language changes when we talk about our Maori ancestors whether we talk about our Irish ones, whether we talk about their Canadian ancestors on their mum's side, they love it. It energises them. The stories of, you know, their ancestors, I've spoken to them about, but even rec more recent ones, their grandfather came to private school in England on a boat from South Africa, had to live by himself from the age of four. These are real stories and they give them a strong sense of who they are and, and that's just on a small scale. So, yeah, I, I think from for all of our history, we've wanted to be around a campfire and we've wanted the warmth of that and the warmth of the connection of the people beside us. And we've wanted to hear stories about this is what makes us different and this is what makes us special. And this is the opportunity we have to do something along those lines ourselves. I'm just thinking, how confused are the Eastwood family going to be in the upcoming World Cup? Who do you go for? You know, you've worked with Scotland. You've got a good mate of yours who's their mental skills coach. You're working across England teams. You're from New Zealand. You've done some work with the All Blacks. You'd have players there in multiple teams around the world. And you've got Irish ancestry. And Ireland are looking good, right? My grandfather, Patrick Flynn, so I 
really connect mm-hmm. with the Irish. So I'm obviously Wallabies first and then jumping on the Irish bandwagon. Seriously, who do you support when you've got a big World Cup, rugby union, football, soccer, or, or the Olympics? You must be so confused in your family. No, well, no, I don't think so. I mean, they have been successfully brainwashed around the All Blacks from literally the time they were born. So uh, we, we're pretty aligned on that. But actually, what you're saying there, I think, is a, is a wider point, which is important. I think one of the absolute gifts and enjoyable parts of life is you curating your own identity story. I do not tell my kids who they are. I give them stories and information which they can do whatever they want. And it's up to them to define what their identity will be. And it will not be exactly the way I think about myself. That's absolutely for sure. And, you know, there's other parts of their identity beyond lineage which will m- play a massive part in it, possibly. You know, the, the, the work that they do, their sexuality, there's, there's a whole lot of things that make up our identity. And for every individual, they, they put different weight on different things. And, and I love that. So what I'm interested in is not them coming out at the end of it with, you know, supporting any particular team, but I want them to have a strong sense of who they are that anchors them for the rest of their lives. And, it's, and if you've got a strong sense of who you are, the values will, will naturally flow from that. Mm. And I can see that in them already. So I, I, I and, and, you know, I've started doing this more in the work that I do, which I hadn't done previously, is actually creating space with players to reflect on, I've done with corporate teams as well, Pepihar actually, which is a Maori concept where you define these are the places that I belong and these are the people I belong with. And so I actually get people to spend time really thinking carefully about that. I get them to bring their phones and show images that support it. And then I get them to share that with each other. Because I, I actually believe if you have a strong sense of who you are, it allows you, enables you to have a stronger sense of belonging in other places. While if you're a bit lost as to who you are, I think it's harder to belong. Yeah, I, I think it's something we should be doing in schools. So every single person comes out of school anchored in a sense of who they are. And they aren't told the answer. They get to work it out for themselves. And you think that 16 to 24-year age group, you think that would make a big difference? 100%. 100%. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited because there are schools who are doing this now. Year seven, they are spending three months on allowing them through stimulation, encouraging them to talk to their parents and grandparents, having historians come in and show them how you can go online and find out things quite quickly and let them just explore and then bring it together. And I think that's a wonderful, I, I absolutely think it's more important than maths and English when you're a 12 year old. Mm. I'll tell you a quick story. And I'm curious to see whether your kids, your two kids and your partner listen to you. My partner, Tony, went to the Golden Door a number of years ago. It's about five, six years ago. And she went there and like the Golden Door is a health retreat here. She came back and she said, babe, it was so good. They're teaching us to downregulate and you know, to be on when you have to and off when you can. And, and, I, and I let her go. And then I said, Tony, you, you know I work with the Golden Door. You, you know they've got an IP license. You know, you're actually you're playing back to me some of the stories in my book about you know, the on-switch, off-switch and being match fit. And she went, yeah, babe, but they just teach it so much better than you do. <laughs> it's like the knockout punch. <laughs> do your kids, does your wife listen or do they go, oh, you're just dad? Oh, definitely. They, they, they're definitely not sitting around listening to my <laughs> coaching conversations now and I, I wouldn't really want them to either I like the fact that 
none of that stuff matters to them at all. And it's nice. My son's 15 and he has been able to, and my daughter nine, so she, she's had probably less opportunity than him, but to get involved in some cool things. But I, I, it seems to be water off a duck's back to them. They don't seem to have any real regard for what I do. And I, I, long may that continue. Oh, I, I like it, actually. It keeps you grounded. Um, I, yeah, definitely. T- Tony won't listen to this, will she? Wish? I think she's listened to a few early podcasts, but she's off me now, so she won't know I'm talking about her <laughs> in my podcast. Uh, it's that time where we talk about performance, intelligence, Baker's does, and I'm really curious to hear your answers on this. So I'm going to give you 13 rapid-fire questions, Owen Eastwood. The oh, first God. answer that comes to mind, hit me with it. Question number one, your favourite song or band? Uh, well, favourite musician is Bruce Springsteen for sure. I really love his song City of Ruins. It's like a preacher's sermon in some ways, but obviously beautifully musical. But I quite like the idea and it's a little bit of mirrors of work that I do. I quite like it maybe when teams are struggling and have got lost and they've got to just rebuild again. And we don't try and replicate some glossy model somewhere. We just try and reflect on who the hell are we and what would the best version of us look like. And that, that song actually reminds me of that. So, yeah, that, that's my answer there. Question two, your favourite movie? Uh, Toy Story means a lot to me. The reason being, with both of our children, we've had so many lovely shared experiences of watching those movies time and again, and then the next version, and then the next version, the next version. And in fact, my again, my son said he watched it again in the weekend by himself and up in his bedroom, which was cool. Emperor Zerg has been secretly building a weapon the destructive capacity to annihilate an entire planet. I alone have information that reveals this weapon's only weakness. And you, my friend, are responsible for delaying my rendezvous with Star Command. You are a toy! You weren't the real Buzz Lightyear, you're you're an action figure! You are a child's plaything! You are a sad, strange little man. And you have my pity. So that, that, that is a real beautiful little treasure from their childhood. Question number three, your favourite book, apart from Belonging, and you can't say Match Fit, my book either. Oh, that's unfair. Uh, Sacred Hoops by Phil Jackson. That's the best book on culture and leadership and sport that I've read. It's not actually a particularly famous book. He wrote it. He was a coach of the Chicago Bulls with Jordan and Pippen, etc., the lovely thing is he wrote that in between the first three Pete and the second one when Jordan went off and played baseball. So it's actually in the moment. It's not a nostalgic um, thinking back. And it, it, it was the first time it validated the spiritual ideas I was holding in my head. And he uses from Sioux Indian tribes uh, spiritual ideas and he built a culture around them. And, and that made me feel, oh my God, these ideas from Polynesia I can, I've got permission now to use these in these environments. Phil Jackson was decades ahead of his time. Phenomenal what he was doing yeah. back then, like introducing mindfulness, a lot of the concepts now some yes. sporting teams go, oh, let's bring in a mindfulness coach. He was doing it decades ago. Question number four, your favourite possession? Being a member of Naitahu, there's some beautiful green stone. So you can't buy that. It has to be gifted to you. It's part of our tribe, tribal law, I suppose. So that, that those possessions, which come from the South Island of New Zealand and where our tribe are the custodians of it, that they're important. Question five, what is your favourite food? Definitely Japanese. Love it. And I'm very lucky. I live in the Cotswolds in England, 
which is about an hour north of Oxford. And we've actually, there's a Soho farmhouse, which is close by where we're members of. And they have an amazing Japanese restaurant in there in the middle of nowhere, literally in the middle of the English countryside. And I've had people who've come from Japan who have eaten there and said it's as, as good as there. So I'm very fortunate. Question number seven. What time do you wake up and go to bed each day? Uh, try to wake up around half past six and get up half an hour later after I listen to a, a bit of a pod to get me wake, waking up. Try to get to bed about 10.30 at night. And you have a morning routine after that? Are you very structured? Are you very habitual before you get into the rest of your day? I do travel quite a bit like yourself. So, but when I'm based at home, I have a lovely ritual in the morning, which is I take my daughter to school and we generally will walk depending on the weather. We have a lovely conversation, hold hands. It's beautiful. And then I will go and get a coffee and then I will come into my office, which is on a hill with a, you know, very fortunate with a lovely view across all the way. You can see the Welsh mountains in the background. And I probably have half an hour where I do low level catching up on stuff and then I have a bit of a deep focus for the next two or three hours around trying to do something substantive. Question eight, what does your weekly fitness schedule look like? Try and exercise properly every second day and that's a combination. I've got a Peloton bike at home which I enjoy so I always go on the scenic tours so have a nice form of escapism and then I'm a member of a gym so I just alternate between those and even when I'm traveling I just try my very best to, to be able to keep that going. What's the road cycling like where you are in the Cotswolds? Are there some good hills? Very, very hilly. Very, very hilly. And very narrow roads. It's not super safe, probably. So I'm quite happy in my Peloton and my garage. Mm. Question number nine. Tell me a go-to productivity tip. When I was a lawyer, we had to record all of our time for charging billing reasons. But I've maintained that practice actually into, and I've been full-time coaching, I think for like, this is my eighth year or something. And so I do every single, every single day I record to, to, you know, the nearest quarter of an hour, how much time I'm spending on certain things. And I find that as a very, gives me a very good discipline, A, just to be productive, you know, I want to record lots, but B, it's actually very good data to go back into and look at and think, you know, how much time am I spending on productive things, unproductive things, and how and, and, and just keep being more efficient. There's that lawyer background popping up again. Yeah, yeah. Question number 10, your most vivid childhood memory. It's funny, the, the trauma of my father passing, I wouldn't call it vivid memory. It was quite a hazy memory. I mean, I do remember a bit about that day, which is horrendous, but... It's not so much vivid. I think the most vivid memories I had at school were around sport, playing it, but also going to our local stadium and watching our team Southland play rugby. And in 1978, you, you won't enjoy hearing this, um, Southland played Australia and beat them. And the following year, we played France and beat them when they were touring. And that, that they actually had a big impact on me. And this is, again, why, what I bring when I talk to teams about what it is to represent other people. Because I was a kid who didn't have very high self-esteem at all, didn't have a great sense of identity at that point. And all of a sudden, I'm going and watching this team, which is beating the Australian national team, the French national team, and as, as half the team are all blacks. And actually, I was able to walk away from that stadium feeling a little bit like a friggin' world champion. Um, it's very bizarre. So, so sport can give people who have a very challenging personal life a sense of esteem and even confidence. 
And I, I don't want people to ever forget that. Uh, question 11, the biggest adversity you faced and what did that teach you? Growing up without a dad was a big adversity because I missed him so much, left such a massive hole in my life. And, you know, my family said I was a shadow. I just followed him around everywhere. So so when he left, although I had three siblings and a wider family and my mum was amazing, I felt a, a real sense of loneliness. I did. And I, I hated that feeling. So I, what I learned from it was that, you know, we feel healthier um, and better if we belong with a group of people, whether it's friends or whether it's family, whether it's at workplace or, or whatever. And it's very, very important to our well-being. And by the way, it also helps us perform at a much higher level. Question 12, what achievement or achievements are you most proud of? I don't really think of in terms of self-pride. I've got good friends who are Muslims and they've taught me quite a lot about that concept. Um, and I respect that. So I don't really think about, I'm not proud of myself, I wouldn't say that. But one thing I feel very fortunate about is I've managed to somehow accidentally find a job I absolutely love. And people seem to think that I, you know, add some value around. I'm looking forward to the answer on this one. Question number 13. What is your definition of high performance? Well, we've had a pretty great <laughs> chat about that, haven't we? Um, we have. I don't. I don't define it. What I'm interested in is people replacing it with the concept of healthy environments. Last night, and I spoke to Aaron Walsh, I said, give me a couple of quotes or what, what do you think it is about Owen that makes him so different? So Walshy, our mutual mate, said this. The thing that separates Owen is his understanding about how the care of a human in a deep way is the accelerator of performance. Oh, wow. Well, I couldn't articulate that better than what Walshy's done. I that is a great aspiration to have. Yeah. And I wanted to keep that to the end because I think it's a beautiful way to sum up what you do. He also went on to say, Owen's ability to lift the lid and not be derailed by outcomes is phenomenal. As a mentor, he helps me wipe away the emotional attachment and get down into the important stuff in a focused and in a profound way. Mm. Well, that's lovely. I mean, I've mentored Walshy for a number of years and there's plenty of times I've had my arm around him and... and and there's plenty of times where I've also kicked him in the butt and said, you know, get over it. We've got to move on. Some The team's asking something of you today that they weren't asking yesterday. And, yeah, so I can see why he might make that comment. And can I move to a broader summary of mentoring coaching? A mentor from the Latin word mentore to be like coach. We've had a conversation about all the different types of coaching. Thank you for turning up today and not just pressing play. Thank you for being a little bit controversial. Thank you for your time, uh, sharing your story. It's a beautiful story, but but thank you. I know this is going to be really well received in our audience and it's athletes to a whole range of different performers, not all high performers. We now want healthy environments. So heartfelt thank you. Uh, it's been an, uh, just been a real blessing to have this conversation today. Well, thank you so much. Ben. Uh, you know, our connection means a lot to me, and, and you did ask some excellent questions. I have to say, they've been asked before. So, I think you were able to get us into a, a, a hopefully what was a really interesting space around this whole concept of high performance. Yes, wizard. I said the goal I had was to ask Owen Eastwood at least one question that he hasn't been asked. Uh, so, thank you. Uh, for people who want to connect with you to to see what you're doing next, your new books, your online digital platform where you're going how do people best find you how do they best connect you do you see the subtle plug i put there about the online digital platform yeah 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 well look there's only two ways really if people are interested in, in 
not only belonging but building healthy environments, then I'd encourage them to at least flick through the book. Other than that, I'm on LinkedIn. It's really the only place I sort of put my attention on the social media side of things. So yeah, I'll probably have a little bit more of a footprint in the future, I suppose, but at the moment, I'm about the only two places, really. Big footprint. We'll chat when you're in Sydney. Yeah, we will. Wow, what a detailed, in-depth and passionate discussion with Owen Eastwood. When I listened back to this, there were three main takeouts from my end. Number one was Owen's poise, the depth and wisdom. Wizard and I were saying this at the end of the interview. We just felt like he could go deep on so many topics. He can skim across and then pause and go depth on an era. I think we could have picked three or four themes. He could have spoken about those for 60 or 90 minutes alone. Two is the big fella got fired up. Wiz, I've never seen him become that fired up before. And and I agitated a little bit. But when we were speaking about high performance and he said, I don't believe. And it was like, oh, he's come alive. Instead, Owen believes about creating a sustainable culture, a healthy culture, rather than a short-term, win-at-all-cost, high-performance culture. And number three, even despite him pushing back and saying he wasn't, he is a great storyteller. And I can't help but think this is that part of his culture. And especially when he went to the tribal chief when he was 12 and said, who am I and where do I belong? This is now deep embedded in Owen's psyche. He's that ability to tell stories and to bring cultural experiences around the globe. So that were my three highlights, Wiz. The poise, the depth and the wisdom. He got fired up. And I love the passion. And three was the beautiful storytelling. Now I'm going to flip the microphone. You're in with me in the studio all the time and you have some great insights. I'm going to start bringing the wizard to the mic a little bit more. So Wiz, on the spot, what were your biggest takeouts from the discussion with Owen? Yeah, I just couldn't get over how smart that dude is. He, like, I know you're good at mental skills, but I feel like he could just run rings around you all day. Um, He's clearly been doing it for a very long time. I think the biggest takeout for me I was thinking about this after, it was such a, so out of left field, was when you're doing the Baker's Dozen and you asked him what his favourite movie was and he said Toy Story. I was expecting him to say something really like, sort of lofty, like, you know, War and Peace or something, but he said Toy Story and not even for the movie, just because of the times he's had with his family watching it. And I, then I thought that really linked back to, although he didn't like to say he had a purpose, but he clearly does and that's working for his family or for whoever needs him, but I think primarily for his family because that kept coming back up. That was interesting on purpose because we both looked because we've recently done a great episode. In fact, it's one of the most listened to episodes with Richard Burton where we spoke about purpose and how a purpose helps you live longer, a purpose makes you more resilient and a purpose helps you make more money. And in that discussion with Owen, once we got a bit deeper and I, I linked back to the interview he did with Michael Gervais, he then said, well, it's actually not about disagreeing with purpose he just didn't have a clearly articulated one it was interesting right i think sometimes people might go to a corporate workshop and it's outcome focused come up with your purpose what are your values what are your vision he's living breathing he's on message every single day and i found that really interesting when he first mentioned he doesn't have one but the more he got into it i went yeah he's totally on purpose he's totally on message it's about belonging yeah so i thought overall it was just really interesting because there's two big things he hit back about, which was high performance and purpose, which I follow you around all the time. I think listening to your voice is about 60% of my week. And I, I hear those terms a lot. And it was almost a shock to me to hear him say, well, 
I don't like using either of those words, which I think, although he did agree with your definitions of them, I think he doesn't like labeling them and just using them to tick the boxes. He likes really going deep and making sure that you're connected with what you're saying and you're not just doing it to say you did it. So that's it from myself, The Wizard and Andrew. We've got a couple of great episodes coming down the pipeline, uh, some big names. I think you'll be very interested in hearing them. We're going to take a short break for the next couple of weeks, so it'll be a few bite-sized episodes while the school holidays are on and then we'll be back with, uh, I won't say who, but we've got a, a big name coming in. I'm actually quite excited for that.